Here's Dr. Contreras. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be back. I was here or in Chicago last year, and I want to thank Claire Whiteman again for uh, the invitation. It's a pleasure to speak to you guys again today. I'm going to be discussing actinic keratoses, uh, including uh, the current and future treatments available, or at least in the pathway as well. As an overview, actinic keratoses will be discussing the background, uh, their relationship to invasive malignancy, and rationale for treatment. Uh, individual treatment data will be reviewed for the currently available options. Uh, comparative data, as limited as it is, will review some of those studies. Also, combination approaches, which are becoming much more common. And those drugs that are on the horizon. And specific situations that I find difficult uh, treating, including uh, disseminated superficial actinic pore keratosis and actinic chelitis. And then we'll go through a couple case studies. Hopefully we'll have time to do that as well. So AKs, uh, there's a prevalence of about 11 to 25% of patients in the U.S. Uh, with at least one actinic keratosis. And we can expect that as the population gets older as a whole, we're going to be seeing a lot more than the 14% that we currently see in our offices. Risk factors include advancing age, cumulative sun exposure, uh, fair skin, male, uh, immunocompromised uh, patients, especially transplant patients, and genetic syndromes such as xerodermapigmentosum. Natural history is really unpredictable. If the actinic keratoses aren't persisting, then they're either regressing or they're transforming to squamous cell carcinoma. And approximately 21 to 26% of AKs will spontaneously regress within a year. And that makes probably accounts for a lot of the placebo effect that we see in a lot of these studies. Um, transformation to squamous cell carcinoma has been reported in up to 20% of AKs per year. And I'm going to just review some of this data. So this slide, it's really busy. It just kind of compiles a bunch of the data that's available for transformation to uh, squamous cell carcinoma. And what I've highlighted in red is uh, that, this is what I usually tell my patients, is about 10% of patients with greater than seven AKs will develop squamous cell within 10 years. Another way to look at this, and there's a large VA trial looking at patients over several years, and at five years, about three to four percent of individual AKs will develop into squamous cell carcinoma. So I think those two data points are easy. Um, you know, it's easy to explain to patients their risk of developing squamous cell. So we have also epidemiological studies showing uh, that AKs are precursors to invasive squamous cell carcinoma, at least lending evidence to that. Uh, a sample of patients uh, at the VA, again, showing 65% of SCCs arose from AK lesions. Also, about 97% of squamous cells will have a contiguous AK. And then we know that AKs have a, um, a path of um, transition to squamous cell, including first usually a p53 mutation. Then that's followed by mutations in p16. That leads to loss of uh, cell cycle control, loss of anti-apoptotic uh, pathway, or sorry, activation of anti-apoptotic pathways, leading to squamous cell carcinoma. We also know from genetic studies, and I'm going to focus on the one at, uh, at the bottom. Uh, showing that gene expression profiles from AKs and SCCs using microarray analysis are very similar. So genes that are upregulated in AKs and squamous cells are downregulated in normal skin and vice versa. And it was similar genes 
in both AKs and squamous cells that were um, either up or down regulated. So you see here that ultraviolet light, uh, ultraviolet light um, causes the atypical keratinocytes in the basilar layer. As these proliferate, then you get the typical actinic keratosis and then evolving into squamous cell carcinoma with full thickness involvement and um, eventually invas invasive squamous cell. So here's a typical patient that we've all seen many times in our office, comes in with um, diffuse photo damage, prominent telangiectasis, obviously had some treatment in the past because there's the hypopigmented areas, and then scattered numerous actinic keratoses. So these are highlighted. You wouldn't know exactly which one of these is potentially squamous cell, but you would look for features like induration, more prominent scaling, tenderness, um, and this one happens to be the squamous cell. And what this picture brings up, I think, uh, nicely is the concept of field cancerization. So again, instead of just looking at these as individual uh, isolated precancerous spots, we can assume that this entire background of sun damage is going to show at least some degree of atypia if you look under the microscope in any area within this area, or any area within uh, this region could potentially become a squamous cell carcinoma. There are risk factors that you can look for, including induration, inflammation, uh, diameter greater than a centimeter, rapid enlargement, bleeding, erythema, ulceration. Any of these factors could lead you uh, to uh, possible squamous cell. There's many things we want to consider with treatment. I think foremost, we're going to have a discussion with our patients about preventative measures. So sunscreen has actually been shown to um, decrease the incidence of AKs also has uh, been shown to increase the uh, regression or that spontaneous regression that I referred to before. Um, there's also topical and systemic retinoids and photodynamic therapy all shown to have a preventative effect. As far as treating the individuals that are present or the individual lesions that are present, we want to look at lesion-directed versus field-directed therapy. And which one we're going to use will depend on location, the size, the quantity of lesions, also the lesion type, and you, you'll see sometimes grading of AKs, so grade one, two, and three. Grade one being those that you can't really see very much, but you can feel on the surface. Uh, grade two are those that you can see and feel fairly well. And then grade three are the more hypertrophic lesions. There's, uh, you wanna consider if the patient is gonna agree to something that's more aggressive, or if they prefer something that's gonna be more gradual. Finally, is, is the patient gonna prefer something they apply at home, like one of the topical creams, or something where they come in and have something that's administered uh, by the provider. Uh, and then finally, you want to assess their motivation. So treatment goals with AKs, there's a few that I think are the most important. First of all is clinical clearance of not only the AKs that we can see, or the ones that we can feel, but those that are going to be unmasked during treatment and uh, that refers to those that are the subclinical lesions. Also, the histologic clearance of the AKs will probably become more important with future studies. Uh, we want to see reversal of the major uh, genotypic abnormalities, and then overall long-term clearance of the affected areas. So as far as our options, we have lesion-directed therapies, uh, most commonly, of course, cryotherapy, which we all use. Um, curatage and electrosurgery, I never use those for AKs, but they are done sometimes and then photodynamic therapy, which I think of more as uh, field treatment as opposed to lesion-directed. For the field-directed therapies, you see the topical creams, chemical peels, laser, and PDT. 
So beginning with the um, lesion-directed therapy, cryotherapy is for those patients in my practice, they have maybe seven to 10 isolated discrete lesions. There's not a lot of background photo damage. Uh, so I'll often treat those uh, patients with cryotherapy and they do quite well. Um, hypertrophic lesions, I think, respond better. Those patients that are non-compliant, and I refer to those patients that um, aren't real motivated to do something different, to apply a cream every day at home. Maybe they've been on Effidex before and they're like, we'll never do anything like that again, despite all the discussion that you have about the other options. And so those patients, so, you know, treat them with cryotherapy. Uh, disadvantages, pain, hypopigmentation, blistering, and scarring. So efficacy has been, been evaluate, evaluated in multiple different studies. Um, in the early 80s, there was a study showing 98% cure rate. Problem with, with these numbers is it's hard to, to know how long the freeze times were. I mean, I've seen freeze times as, uh, as long as 40 seconds reported in the literature, which doesn't seem real practical. So that's why this study in 2004 I found really helpful, because it actually breaks down tree, or freeze times. So less than five seconds, there was a cure rate of 39%, and that increased to 83% with longer freeze times. This is a device that came out fairly recently, I think in the last couple of years, and this actually allows temperature monitoring of the treated site. So you spray uh, the AK and it'll tell you on the monitor what the temperature is of the skin. And our goal for AKs is about negative five degrees Celsius. So when you reach that temperature, the monitor uh, turns colors and you know that you've reached that, uh, the ideal temperature. And with, um, with this apparatus, they actually saw clinical clearance one week out at 67%. And then when they went back and looked six, six weeks later, they actually saw 100% clearance. So. This may be something that we see, uh, maybe not so much in our hands where we have more uh, dermatology experience, but maybe for primary care practitioners. So facial resurfacing um, was compared to uh, 5-FU, so they looked at TCA 30% and carbon dioxide. And I think this slide is important too because it highlights the difference between percent reduction in lesions compared to 100% uh, clearance. Now, a lot of the studies now, based on FDA recommendations, they really have to jump this hurdle of 100% clearance of lesions, which, you know, clinically speaking, in our practice, it maybe isn't as meaningful as just seeing a significant reduction in the amount of lesions. But these are the uh, numbers that you're going to be seeing because the FDA is, is requiring them. Um, so if you look at TCA in the middle, although there's 89% lesion reduction, you see that 100% uh, clearance is zero. Now, obviously, 89% is significant reduction in lesions, um, so it wouldn't tell you a whole lot seeing that there's 0% complete clearance. Um, so you can see the difference between uh, at least three, these three modalities here. And I think the other important point that this study brings out, and it's one of the only studies to show this, is that five years out, looking at these patients um, over time, you see that in the control group, there's 24 uh, new non-melanoma skin cancers that develop within the, that five-year period. In the treated group, all the treated groups actually show decreased onset of new non-melanoma skin cancers by at least fourfold. And then these are the incidence numbers associated with those. And of course, that's our goal in treating AKs. We want to prevent progression to non-melanoma skin cancer. So now getting into the topical field treatments, I just want to review the data that's out there. So you have the numbers uh, for your discussions with patients in the uh, difference in efficacy and some of the side effects associated with these. So 
Uh, five fluorouracil acts as a pyrimidine analog, interferes with DNA replication, possibly RNA production as well. Many different formulations available. For the 5% cream, there's a lot of studies that, uh, that show data, but they're not really well designed, you know, um, um, like FDA kind of rigorous trials, um, because this came out before those were really um, as stringent. So we do have some data, though, that shows 100% clearance in one study as high as 96%, in another one as low as 22%, lesion reduction varying between 60 and 94%. We've all seen patients with this reaction. These are the ones that come back and say, oh my God, I don't think I could do that again. And this could be within one week. This could be after three weeks of treatment. Um, often results in poor compliance. And so when you're seeing a patient like this, you wonder, okay, is, is there any way we can decrease the frequency of the dosing? Can we maybe treat them with a topical steroid, make them feel better during treatment? And so two, two questions become important. First, is greater irritation necessary for improved efficacy? Are we somehow interfering with their response overall if we treat them with an anti-inflammatory? Second, would a different dosing strength or frequency allow for a more tolerable but equally effective option? So there was a split-phase study evaluating this, and one group uh, control with uh, 5-FU alone, the other groups all with triamcinolone. And interestingly, the combination treatment had the same reduction in lesions and in the appearance of new lesions compared to the 5-FU alone. So it didn't seem like irritation was important in the overall um, response. Now looking at different frequencies of application. So are, are less frequent applications going to be as effective? And there was a weekly pulse dosing that was reported with an endpoint of um, 96 to 100% clearance of AKs. Second study, however, with the same dosing regimen, saw only two patients with excellent results, and they happened to be the patients that had the more severe inflammation. And then finally, there was a, a poster presentation at the AAD that showed once daily dosing of 5-FU with 92% reduction of AK lesions. And they saw that there was actually faster resolution of the erythema compared to the twice daily dosing. So next question, okay, would it decrease strength as opposed to decrease frequency, or maybe both, have uh, similar efficacy with better tolerability. Uh, so this is where the 0.5% formulation of 5-FU comes in. And comparing just the moderate facial irritation between 5% uh, and 0.5, you see that decreased number of patients reported moderate irritation. Um, results from the studies for the 0.5% show complete clearance of 58 and 48%. And then the bottom chart with decreased um, AKs of 92 or 89%. So similar to those numbers we saw for the 5% cream. There was a head-to-head -head study which uh, showed that the complete clearance was identical in each group. And patient preference was for the lower strength, which is um, you know, assumed because of the uh, uh, less irritation. 85% of patients preferring that. And it's felt that it's because the vehicle and the 0.5% cream possibly allows the medication to stay in the dermis as opposed to getting more absorbed and causing more irritation. So with any of these products, really patient education is key. Uh, for for uh, the 0.5% in particular, you'll, you'll want to tell them within two weeks, most patients have clearance of the irritation. Um, typical patient will look like uh, this gentleman here. But we've all seen, probably we've all seen patients like this. And, 
you wonder why they didn't call a week before and say, hey, this stuff is crazy. You know, I can't believe you gave this to me. But some of them actually get through the whole course, even though they look like this. And um, the key really here is, is to tell them to stop medication, consider um, culture for super, or secondary bacterial or viral infection, and then also consider avoiding treatment with 5-FU um, over the summer months because it is phototoxic. So the next medication, amiquimod, this works through the toll-like receptor 7, and that has, uh, uh, causes upregulation of the um, inflammatory response genes. You have increased cytokine production. The innate immune response uh, calls in neutrophils and macrophages into the area. And then you have actually cell-mediated immunity that develops, too, through the T cells and a Th1 uh, response. Again, numerous studies looking at uh, imiquimod. And I'll start with the 5% cream. And you can see in red, that's the FDA-approved dosing twice a week for 16 weeks with 45% complete clearance. And then uh, I think most of you have probably tried one of these alternative regimens where you have four weeks on it three times a week with the rest period and then a possible second course. And you can see with that regimen, there was um, uh, 70 or almost 70% complete clearance in one of the studies. There was another study looking at weekly dosing of amiquimod. And so this was a split face study, double blind, 5% cream once a week for six months versus placebo. And again, to a smaller uh, surface area. And although they didn't quantify improvement, they said there was marked improvement uh, in 46%. So of course, this would require further studies, uh, but maybe a possible regimen. So expected reaction with amiquimod. You see some mild or mild moderate erythema crusting. There are going to be some patients with more profound erythema, erosions, ulceration, thick scabbing, and crusting. Again, you want to educate them before they start treatment and let them know. If you get to this point, you know, show them pictures, uh, stop treatment, give us a call. I know a lot of people actually have their patients in over the first week or two of treatment uh, into the office just to make sure things are going well. And so similar to what we saw with Effudex and um, Carax, so the 5% and the 0.5% formulation of 5-FU, the question became, can we shorten the regimen? Can we maybe use the lower strength of amiquimod and allow for an easier uh, and shorter dosing regimen with similar efficacy? And so that was the rationale for the 3.75% formulation. So the goal was to simplify and shorten duration. By doing this, you would need to increase uh, the frequency of application um, also, you want to enhance tolerability of the daily dosing, and to do that, like you would, you would need a, a, a lower percentage. And then the cycle-based approach, which we saw with the four-week-on, four-week-off, four-week-on regimen, um, was seen in those studies to be more tolerable, so that was examined with the 3.75% as well. And I want to point out some of the key differences between the studies for Zyclera and Aldera. So uh, the dosing... Um, treatment, of course, six weeks versus 16 weeks. Dosing frequency daily for Zyclera versus twice weekly for Aldera. Number of lesions was higher in the Zyclera studies, uh, 5 to 20. And then Aldera studies was 4 to 8. Treatment area was significantly larger. So 200 square centimeters is felt to be kind of an average for coverage of um, scalp or face. And Aldera studies were based on 25 centimeters squared. And then Zyclera also included hyperkeratotic lesions, whereas Aldera did not. The amiquimod dosing uh, at 3.75%, again, two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, and then 
eight-week final evaluation. These are typical patient responses with mild, moderate, and severe. I think this is a great picture, um, you know, this is to show your patients before starting treatment so they know they can fit into any one of these categories. Complete clearance was seen in 35% and partial clearance, which is 75% or more uh, improvement, was seen in almost 60% of patients. And I just wanted to review the data again. So for the 5% and the 3.75%, uh, the 3.75%, 35% uh, complete clearance, 5% at the FDA dosing was 45%. So you see a significant difference, but again, the variables are different between the studies. You have a larger surface area that you're treating with Cyclera, so it's harder to see complete clearance in a larger area. Also, um, could be the result of adding hyperkeratotic lesions into the treatment group. If you look at just median reduction in AKs, then you see similar numbers, 82% and 83%. So diclofenac gel, this is a topical NSAID. It interferes with uh, COX-2. Um, COX-2 is known to be upregulated in AKs and squamous cells. Uh, it uh, causes enhanced tumor proliferation, stimulation of angiogenesis, inhibition of apoptosis, and uh, inhibiting COX-2 will lead to uh, better immune surveillance. So application is 60 to 90 days, twice a day. So I just want to review the data for diclofenac. See one study showing 47% complete clearance, uh, another one 41%. This is a long-term study, so one year after treatment. They saw 32% in pink at uh, the end of treatment, and that was cumulative lesions. And that, that's not just the targeted lesions that they initially identified. This is targeted, plus any new lesions that may have come up over the treatment period. And 30 days after treatment, there was still um, progressive response increasing to 45%, and then at one year, 30% uh, still maintained cumulative lesion clearance. So the next field treatment, I'm curious, how many um, people in here use photodynamic therapy routinely for actinic keratoses? So quite a few, and how many use blue light? And how about red light? So a few. So that number may be increasing over time. Um, but I'm going to review the different uh, options that are available. Oh, so to review the mechanism, again, it's a photosensitive chemical that we're applying to the skin, whether it's uh, metvixia or levulan. These are aminolevulinic acids. They're converted to protoporphyrin 9, selectively absorbed into the um, uh, more rapidly proliferating cells like actinic keratoses. Uh, when stimulated by uh, light, uh, they produce free oxygen radicals that are cytotoxic to the adjacent cells. And this all uh, is dependent on the selective absorption of protoporphyrin 9 for the blue light or the red light. And you can see in red is the absorption spectrum for uh, protoporphyrin maxing out at about 400 with significant overlap with the emission of blue light, which peaks at 411 nanometers. If you're using red light, you're in this range here and taking advantage of that absorption peak that's small but still significant. Uh, difference between the two, because it's a longer wavelength, red light is going to penetrate deeper. Uh, blue light penetrates into the epidermis, which is sufficient for superficial actinic keratoses um, because the epidermis is about two millimeters, dermis measures about three millimeters, so red light obviously is going to go through epidermis and dermis and may be more effective for uh, you know, Bowens, for 
basal cell, things where you need uh, better penetration. So there's two systems available in the US. First, with uh, blue light, there's Levulan um, and Blue U. Uh, with uh, methylaminolevulanic acid, or Metvixia, there's three different lights um, that I'm most familiar with, and that's Actilite, CureLite, Omnilux. Also, studies look at several other light sources, including intense pulse light, pulse dye laser. This is the FDA-approved regimen for Levulan. You can see the Karastik, and that's applied to the skin. Left on in the um, FDA-approved regimen for 14 to 18-hour incubation period, followed by illumination with the blue U for a total of a, total of a thousand seconds. And that's why we tell our patients about the 16 minutes and 40 seconds, which sounds really random initially. Um, and then patients are retreated eight weeks later if they're not clear. But often in our clinical practice, uh, of course, we use shorter incubations. There's things you can do to help in, uh, enhance penetration, including microdermabrasion. Some people will do before treatment. Uh, the use of 5-FU uh, before treatment, um, uh, curatage sometimes. Metvixia is uh, approved for use after curetting um, individual lesions. It's then applied and covered with the non-absorbent dressing like Tegaderm left on for three hours. That's rinsed off. And then uh, illumination with, uh, or, sorry, with the red light for about 10 minutes. Um, with the light... Uh, shown here, the Actilite, often, um, you know, it's such, it's such a small squared um, area, and you have to usually apply it to three different um, regions, you know, the side of the face, center, and then the other side. So here's a typical patient reaction on the left, and that's from the package insert for Levulan. So mild erythema during uh, the first 24 hours. Uh, by four weeks, most patients have no redness or scaling. Usually within a week, actually, the scaling has resolved, but they might have some persistent redness. Um, this patient is somebody I saw about two weeks ago and thought he would be perfect for this talk. I said, please, let me take your picture, because not everybody's going to look like the package insert. He was a little surprised by how inflamed he was. Um, so again, I would show patients his picture and the package insert, let them know that you can be anywhere you know, in this um, kind of gray area. But with, with him, too, we don't know, did he go home? Did he drive home a half hour? Was he exposed to the sunlight through the window the whole time? Um, so less controlled situations in our patients compared to the studies. Uh, efficacy of Blue U was shown to be about 72% complete clearance after two courses, about 66% after one course. Short contact incubations. Uh, have also been investigated with the blue light. You can see 50 to 90% improvement uh, using IPL, anywhere from 68 to 90% um, improvement. Uh, patient on the left had 0.5% 5-FU, uh, and this is two weeks after treatment. Patients on the right had PDT. These are two weeks after treatment, uh, both with the same efficacy of 50%, um, so different uh, local skin reactions. So MAL-PDT, there's been a number of studies, either looking at one course, two courses, or one course followed by a second course if necessary. In red is two courses of Metvixia uh, with responses anywhere between 87 and 91%. So again, very effective. There was a head-to-head -head study looking at ALA and MAL-PDT, um, split-face randomized study, ALA for th five hours and MAL for three hours, and no difference in efficacy although they did note more pain associated with ALA. So we know that PDT has multiple advantages. It's effective. 
um, well-documented uh, cure rates ranging from 67 to 92%. Overall, less scarring, less overall downtime, um, and it's a phys physician-applied treatment, so may uh, deal with issues of non-compliance or just uh, poor uh, patient motivation. Thank you.